0: We're in the last episode of Joseph's life. The last several weeks we've been going piece by piece examining Joseph. And and I was thinking of this last episode of his life. I was thinking of all the TV shows that I grew up watching, and I remember the last episodes. Remember, there are certain TV shows that are so good that there's this final episode where everybody tunes in to watch it. Uh, Some might remember, some may not, but... Um, whether it's TV shows like Home Improvement, it's TV shows like MASH, which is the most watched last episode of any TV show in history, by the way. Uh, but there's other shows that you watch in, like Seinfeld, and you, you see people just tuning in to watch this final episode because of what it meant, or The Cosby Show. I mean, fill it in, and you can remember your favorite TV show in that time when you knew it was going off the air and everybody prepares to watch that final episode. Why? Because it meant a lot to us. It, it, it somehow touched our hearts and our lives in a way that made us feel like we were a part of that family. Or it, it, it was there for us in a time when we were going through a lot of hurt. and It helped us laugh or helped us cope with a certain stress or just forget about the cares of the world for a little while. So we wanted to have an opportunity to have closure, to say goodbye. Now, as we look at Joseph's life, we see an an individual that has become, in in many ways, uh, a comfort to each one of us. His story, uh, these episodes that we've been looking at over the past several weeks, have brought us in and showed us a great deal about who God is uh, as we looked and examined Joseph's life. And we see how God worked through him, and in many ways, it's become a comfort to us as we've seen how an individual has endured such hostility, has gone through such horrific tragedy and was able to remain faithful to God in the middle of that is an encouragement to our souls. So today we're going to look at this final episode, this last episode of Joseph's life, to say to have closure for the series, but also just to see a, a summation of his life and his walk with God and what it might mean for each one of us who seek to walk with God. So I'd, I, I would encourage us all to tune in uh, to see what, how God worked in this last episode of Joseph's life, how he enters into eternity, and how we might draw inspiration, encouragement from this story and walk closer with him, God, because of it. So let's ask for God to bless our message time. Our great God and Father, we ask you to speak to us today. Lord, we thank you for the example of Joseph's life and how you worked in him and through him. And Lord... Uh, Help us to see you through all of this and to walk closer with you because of it. But Lord, as we enter into this last episode, we ask you to speak to us by the power of your Spirit that we might have driven home in our hearts and our minds the truths of your word that we might walk closer and more intimately with you. We pray your blessing upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, this is the last chapter of the book of of Genesis. And as we've gone through this, we've seen just a great deal uh, of Joseph's life and what he's gone through. And now we see uh, Genesis chapter 50 of Joseph um, coming to the end of his father's life and seeing, being there at the end of his dad's life, and then um, him himself stepping into eternity. But I want us to jump in at verse 1 we, of chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And then Joseph commanded his servant, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the the Egyptians wept for him seventy days." Now, there are a few things I want us to notice as we delve into this passage, because if we don't understand the details of what the author is sharing with us, then we'll never get the full meaning of what is being brought out and how we can apply it to our lives. So there's a few things that I want us to see. First of all, Joseph, after his father dies, he he weeps over him. He loved his father greatly. And then he commands the physicians to prepare Jacob's body for embalming him. Now, it was a pretty thorough practice, and normally one done by priests. It's one that you don't think about, the embalming practice of ancient Egyptians, but Egyptians were fascinated with death. I mean, they had a preoccupation with death. I mean, that's what the pyramids are all about. They're giant tombstones. Uh, and they've been around quite a long time. Matter of fact, I, I, I saw something the other day that was quite phenomenal to me, that uh, Cleopatra is closer to the time of Snapchat than, when she's, than she was closer to the time of the pyramids. Okay, that seems crazy to us, but there's, remember, you're talking about a, a dynasty of 40, 40 like, different dynasties with Egypt. It's a very ancient world. Even when Abraham came to Egypt, the pyramids had already been built and been standing. This is a very ancient civilization. And I've had the opportunity to travel and study. Uh, I did a study trip in Egypt in 2006. I got to go to the different pyramids. I got to um, visit the uh, um, Egyptian, or excuse me, the American Museum in Cairo, which has got filled with uh, King Tut's mask and his sarcophagus and all the things he was buried with. And it's just incredible how much they were fascinated with death. And so they had these very detailed procedures when, they, when someone would die. Um, so when someone one uh, would die, they would actually remove the brain. They would use something where they'd draw it up the nose and they'd pull out the brain, scrape it out, not to give you all the gruesome details, but then they would actually take out different organs. Uh, They would take out the stomach, the liver, the intestines, and I'm trying to remember what the last one is. Stomach, intestines, lungs, and liver, and they would wash them with palm wine and strong medicines that would tighten the skin. And they would put them in what was known as canopic jars, and then they would bury the individual with these, thinking that they, would need the, um, that they would be there for them in the afterlife. Now, they didn't take out the heart, because the heart was considered the seat or center of a person's being, so they would leave that there. And then they, they would actually uh, use essential oils <laughs> covering the body. they are not joking. They would use myrrh. Cassia, cedar, and cinnamon. And they would do this over a 30-day period of time to get the skin ready for burial. And then they would soak them in uh, saltpeter for another almost 40 days, wrap them in linen, and then preserve the body for mummification. Why? They would. I mean... After that, excuse me, they would put them into uh, a burial chamber. If it was a king, it would be put into uh, the pyramid, and they would have all of the things that they would need for the afterlife. Uh, in King Tut's tomb, for example, they had his chariot, had his summer furniture, had beer, food, pets. I mean, it was incredible what this guy was buried with. Uh, and the reason we know so much about this, by the way, is that and we have so much of King Tut's stuff, is because he died quite young. Uh, and, and there's a, um, almost like a dog tag that would be on all of the Egyptian, uh, all of his stuff. It was like a, a dog tag that would have his name on it. We know that he died suddenly. He actually died of a chariot accident where they broke his leg and died with gangrene and died over several days. But his tomb was one of the few tombs that was not vandalized by grave robbers. And he died quickly, so quickly that they didn't have all of the stuff ready for him, that they had to use his father's stuff and shoved it in the tomb so he would be ready for the afterlife. I mean, so they were really preoccupied with the afterlife. Now, here comes Joseph in the middle of this pagan culture, and his father dies. Now, he could go with the practices of the Egyptians, and I'm sure he used some of them, but not all. Matter of fact, he commands the physicians to do the embalming, not the priest, which was the common group that would do the embalming of the individual, which is a signal and show that he didn't agree with the pagan or the Egyptian notion of the afterlife, that he had a different understanding. He agreed so much with the embalming practice, but he didn't want them to do their ceremonies to the body to show that he did, He rejected that. And as his father is then prepared for burial, uh, he he then says... Uh, comes to Pharaoh and he says, or he sends a messenger to Pharaoh uh, after this 70 days of weeping was done. Uh, it says, he, he spoke to the household of Pharaoh in verse 4, saying, if, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Which is, it, it, There's a lot of details here that we might miss. I actually want to go back for a moment. Uh, in verse 3, it says, 40 days were required for the embalming procedure. That is how many were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him in those 70 days. Now, it's incredible. Uh, The Israelites would customarily weep for a person for seven or sometimes 30 days. But here, the Egyptians are weeping for 70 days, which was a sign of great esteem for him. If he had been a king, a pharaoh, it would have been 72 days. So here, he's showing that he has great favor in the sight of the Egyptians, Joseph doesn't. So does Jacob because of his relationship with Joseph. Now, what can we draw from that? What is God trying to show us? Is that there is a favor that only God can provide. When we are living our life for God, he then helps us to have favor in the sight of the world when we are living in a way that is honoring to him. Now, We will have enemies. We will be persecuted. But there are opportunities when people see Christ in us, they see how we live our lives, that there will be a favor that is brought out through our lives. We see that with Joseph. Joseph honors God. He is then persecuted, in essence, by his brothers. He's sent into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house, and he has favor in the sight of Potiphar. He works his way up to become the head steward. Falsely accused. We know the story uh, of rape. He is then put into prison. And where does he get favor then? In the eyes of the prison warden. So he gets this favor that God is providing for him as he is living his life under the sovereignty of God, living a life of integrity, and God becomes his defender and his advocate. In this last episode of Jacob's life, we can see an incredible favor that only God can provide. Now, his life is an example for us to learn from. And we can see that it requires us to help those around us. That's what Joseph did. He helped those around him. Even though Joseph was in all of these difficult situations, he stayed faithful to the Lord his God. He didn't despair. He didn't give up. He didn't just say, I mean, not care about the world or shut them out. He kept doing what he knew was right. Even when his family betrayed him. Even when Potiphar's wife lied about him. Even when the cupbearer forgot him. What did he do? Did he throw a pity party? Did he just sit there and say, the world is against me and give up? Did he turn to all kinds of sin? No. He continued being faithful to the Lord his God. He could have refused to work for his unbelieving bosses, but he didn't. He sought to help those around him. In the book of Jeremiah, when the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, God says this to the Israelites. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4-7, through 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I bring that up because we, in many ways, are in exile now. This is not our home. And many of us think that if we live for, have ungodly bosses or an ungodly person we don't think is worthy of our honor. We have this way of lambasting them, criticizing, not giving our best. But God is saying that in this unbelieving world, which we are finding ourselves, just like the Israelites found themselves in an unbelieving world in Babylon, and just as Joseph found himself in the unbelieving world of Egypt, we are to do our best and seek the best for those that we find ourselves working under and working around and working with. As Christians, especially in the United States of America, we have this this notion at times that if a person's unworthy of our honor, we don't give it and we won't give our best. But here, we see people that are complete unbelievers that Joseph is working for and he's still doing his best. Daniel did the same thing as he is there. We see example after example within Scripture. We're to honor those whom honor is due. We're to do our best, even if they're unbelievers, even if they're adulterers, even if they're blasphemers, even if they worship a false god. We're to still do our best because ultimately we're working for God, not for men. We need to remember that. We need to be able to help those Around us to seek their betterment, their welfare. That's why we saw in that passage as God said to Israel through Jeremiah, "For in their welfare, you'll find your welfare." The Israelites could have went, "We're in exile. We're in Babylon. Who cares? Let's just give in and give up." And God says, "No, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do your best, even when you have unbelieving bosses. To do your best. So we want to make sure that we are helping those around us, just as Joseph did." He helped those in Potiphar's house. He didn't want to be there. He helped those in the prison, helping them out. And then what does he do? He ends up helping the entire nation of Egypt and then the the lands surrounding it. That we must make sure that we are helping those around it. Now we get a further glance into Joseph's character. Look at verse 5 with me. My father made me swear. Joseph's right here saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now he sends a messenger to Pharaoh. We don't know why he doesn't go into the presence of Pharaoh himself. He was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, esteemed, probably the highest esteemed among all of Pharaoh's court or cabinet. Uh, It could be for ceremonial reasons. He didn't want to... um, bring uh desecrate himself or make himself impure we don't know exactly but he sends this messenger to pharaoh and he he tells pharaoh this he goes i made my father a promise i swore that i would do something and that would be return his body to canaan in the ancient world one's word was important in our age words mean nothing when someone makes a promise and follows through with it we're surprised especially our politicians Joseph was a man of his word and kept his commitments. And for us to put ourselves in a position for God to grant us this favor, we have to hold fast to our commitments. Hold fast to our commitments, what we commit ourselves to. As we see in Psalm chapter 15, verse 1 through 5, Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter in your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. He continues on. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. I want to go back one, one slide, please, for a moment where he talks about even keeping your promises, even when it hurts. Joseph kept his word. He has to go now in front of Pharaoh. He was willing to hold fast to his commitment. And we are too. If we are Christians and we say say something, we're to follow through with that. Now, we've all fallen short in this. Sometimes we just get so busy, we forget about it. There's other times, though, we make promises and we know that we can't keep. And we can't do that. As Christians, we have to say what we mean and mean what we say. And when we say something, we need to follow through with it to the best of our ability. And when we do fail, when we do wrong, we need to seek forgiveness for it. But Joseph was a man of his word. What he said he would do. And by following and holding fast to these commitments, people, God honored him for that and granted him favor in the sight of Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh then would honor him. So we must make sure that we are holding fast To our commitments. That means to our our families, to our spouses, to our children, to our employers, to our neighbors, to other believers, to those all around us that we see within the world. We must make sure that we are holding fast to our commitments. And also, you can see that he respected Pharaoh. He asked for his permission. He didn't simply leave or threaten. He honored him. And we can see that we must also honor those above us. Honor those above us. Doesn't the scripture say that we're to work in such a way that benefits our employers? Aren't we to honor those for whom honor is due? We have this tendency to want to give honor to those we believe are worthy of honor, but we're to honor those in positions above us whether they're worthy or not. And that means to a parent, boss, emperor, or president, we must still show honor whether we want to or not because that is pleasing to God. Because of how Joseph treated those around him, he put himself in a position whereby God grants him favor in the sight of others. And one need only look at the vast parade of officials that accompanies him to see how much they admired and revered him because he was a man of integrity. And then to see how they mourned for Joseph was so startling that the Canaanites who lived nearby took note of it. Notice this, verse 7 in chapter 50. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left, up, left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. See, all of these officials came up because they honored Jacob, but they were really honoring Joseph. That's what their relationship was with. And so that's because God had granted him favor, and because how he lived his life, he put himself in a position of favor. He helped those around him. He held fast to his commitments, and he'd honor those above him. Now, the second principle that we can see from Joseph is a faith that perseveres. Joseph had an incredible faith to go through all that he did and came out with a great love for God and his brothers. Faith is powerful, and true faith in God will persevere through all of the trials we find ourselves. In our era, if we would have heard all about that Joseph went through, what would you say to him? If you'd heard about all the things that Joseph had gone through, that he was, he was rejected by his family, that he was sold into slavery, that he had been working as a domestic servant in a land that, that he didn't know the cultures and the language, he had to learn all of that, and then falsely accused and put into prison, I mean, what would we say about him if we just heard that part of the story? We'd say he needs therapy. He needs counseling, possibly some serious medication that we can understand all of his hurts and all of his issues. We'd really understand if he was really messed up and went to a life of crime and was frustrated and he could be a victim and he could do all of this. But that's not what he does. He continues his hope and keep, keeps his faith and eye on God through the middle of all these things. He has a persevering and, and amazing faith. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't point the finger at everybody else. He doesn't sit there and stew about how he's going to get back at his brothers or how he's going to shove his face or thumb his face at, at Potiphar's wife when he gets out. He doesn't do any of those things. He keeps his eye on God. It's a faith that perseveres. It perseveres. Joseph had an incredible faith. A great love for God and his brothers. Faith is powerful and true faith in God will persevere through all the trials that we find ourselves. He kept his eye on God not on his circumstances. He trusted in the Lord no matter what he went through. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible to see what he did. So many of us though, we have a very hard time. Our faith is pretty weak if we think about it. I would say that you know, if your faith can't get you to church on Sunday morning, then we, how is it going to get you into heaven? Uh, because oftentimes we, we want to talk about how great our faith is, but yet it doesn't show itself, show, it, show itself in the normal things in life. I like how Isaiah put it. He said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, if I, if I have this or Yeah, 7, verse 9. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. We have to be firm in our faith. He was speaking to the nation of Israel. They were to be firm in their faith. Are you firm in your faith? Can you, do you have a persevering faith? Or is it always dependent upon the circumstances? Is it always dependent upon your emotions and and how things are going externally in your life? Because that's not real faith. Joseph's faith was seen in how the, the difficulties went through. That's where his faith was made firm and hardened, strengthened. Is your faith strengthened by the circumstances and the situations that you're going through? What you're going through right now? Do you find your faith wavering? Or is it being strengthened? If your faith is not firm, then you'll never be able to endure trials, suffer, or sacrifice and serve the Lord. And for us to have a persevering faith, then it requires us to fight through the pain. Fight through the pain. See, Joseph had to fight through the pain of all of the years the hopelessness, the powerlessness of being sold into slavery, of being falsely accused and then put into prison. And the hopelessness he felt while he was in prison, I can't imagine. It was a terrible pain, but he was able to fight through it. Pain is inevitable in life, but misery is entirely ours to choose. His brothers were fearful of him after Jacob died. They thought that maybe perhaps the reason that Joseph hadn't retaliated, uh, retaliated to their, their selling him into slavery was because Jacob was there to protect him. So it was amazing to see what happens after uh, Jacob is buried and they return to Egypt. And in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now I love what happens next. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept when they spoke to him. Why? Was it all the pain that he'd gone through and he'd been able to fight through it? Or was it that they they still yet did not understand that he had forgiven them? We don't know exactly the reason why they wept. We see that Joseph is an amazing man. He's an emotional man. He had wept when he had seen his brother Benjamin. He's weeping over the body of Jacob. He's showing emotion. By the way, there's nothing wrong with showing emotion. I, I know that the previous generations have said that a real man doesn't cry, but you haven't read the literature of the ancient world where you see some of the great heroes within Greek history and tragedy, great warriors lamenting over the loss of their loved ones. We see Jesus himself weeping at the grave of Lazarus, someone that he loved greatly. And they weep not because that they're so emotional, but they're so overcome because of the depth of their love in the middle of the situation that their body then reacts and Joseph is loving so he loves so intensely and he's lo- he loves his brothers now but yet he's he moves past he's able to fight through all that pain that had gone through that he'd gone through and he's still showing love to his brothers in the midst of it we have to fight through the pain in our lives we all had pain that we've gone through you've had pain i've had pain We've all had pain, pain through the circumstances which we have gone through, the consequences of the sins that we have ourselves committed, or we have, been, we have gone through pain because of hurts that were done to us. But learning to find God through the midst of that, and Joseph did. He was not going through this situation because of any choice of his own. He was going through all of the, or the struggles that he had gone through because of the choices of others that made but yet he still remained or was able to remain focused on God in the middle of it. He was able to fight through the pain. Now his brothers, though, were fearful of him, so they came up with this ruse to get their brother to treat them well. They sent this, as we saw, we, he, they sent a messenger with a message from their dead father asking him to forgive them, uh, or that's what he said it was on his deathbed. They, he had sent this message, and Joseph may not know it about it, but they want to share it with them, and they're making up this complete lie. And about 20 years had passed since Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers, but it didn't matter. They went back to their old habits and were fearful that the only reason Joseph never retaliated was because of their dad being alive. And they send this message to Joseph and he weeps. But he shows that he had already forgiven them. And he says in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? meaning that I, I can't hold this against you. I have to forgive. See, he showed incredible faith, and we do too when we forgive those who hurt us. When we forgive those who hurt us. One of the greatest stories of forgiveness comes from Corey Ten Boom. You might be familiar with her. You may not. Uh, she was from uh, Holland, the Netherlands. And Corey and her family had helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust in World War II. For her actions, she was arrested and put into a concentration camp, or the concentration camp Ravensbruck, along with her sister, Betsy. But the camp's dehumanizing conditions took its toll on the sisters, and Corey's sister, Betsy, died in the camp on December 16, 1944. After the war, Corey went around to 60 different nations, talking about her experiences writing books, often going to churches, but it was one church in Munich, Germany, that stood out above all others. That's where her faith was truly challenged. See, it was in a church in Munich that she says, I saw him. He was a balding, heavyset man. He had a gray overcoat, brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where she had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. So this is fresh. Think about this. Her sister died December sixteenth, 1944. She'd been in a concentration camp herself. The war ends in June of 1945. It's just two years later, three years after her sister died, probably two and a half years, still very fresh. And yet, here it was, 1947, and she came from Holland to this defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And it was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. She says, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, she she goes, I said, God cast them in the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a wizard cap with a skull and crossbones. She has a flashback. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A, fra- a fine message for How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket, but rather than take that hand. He would not have remembered me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. He says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. She says, he didn't remember me. But he goes on, but since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Freulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? What would you do? Let me ask you that. We're great at talking about forgiveness in the theoretical, but think about the person that harmed you the most in your life. Or, Harm someone that you loved or even took the life of the one that you loved? What do you do? See, that's where our faith becomes real. It's in the circumstances of life. It goes beyond the theoretical. It goes beyond this message and it goes into the very foundation of our life and in the experiences that we have. She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with that most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. As the Lord's Prayer says, whereas Jesus said, "If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours." I knew it not only as a commandment of God but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a, had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, what do I do? But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help! I prayed silently. I can lift up my hand. I can do that much. God, you supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand in the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That's forgiveness. That's what we need to do. Joseph could forgive his brothers, God calls us to forgive those who hurt us. Who do you need to forgive? Who are you trying to hold in a prison of bitterness that you've constructed because you want them to suffer as much as you have? As you look through the bars at them and you hold them in this bitterness cage or this cage of unforgiveness and you look through the bars at them, I have to tell you something that the, really the person's not in that, but you are. Those bars are yours. The only way to get rid of that and get out of that prison of bitterness is to put the key of forgiveness in. That's what lets you out. It's not they themselves that are in there. It's you. And you are trying to construct it for them, but the reality is is that you're the one in it. We are to forgive those who have hurt us. No matter what and how egregious it might be, we are to forgive them. Forgive them. Joseph forgave. His brothers, Joseph's faith in is, is, his perspective about the whole ordeal is incredible. He's able to see beyond what happened to him. He recognizes that God had put him in a position for such a time as this. Notice how he responds to his brothers in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He refuses to judge them because he's not God. But he notices that while his brother's actions were evil and meant for an evil purpose, God would use it and had used it, unbeknownst to them, for good for the preservation of life for thousands. It's our faith. If our faith is to persevere, then we need to focus on God's purpose. God's purposes are often not easy to discern. We do not understand why we go through certain things, why someone we love dies, or why they endure a horrific tragedy. But God has a plan bigger and greater than our pain. God has a way of redeeming our pain to help us sympathize with others. I saw a movie a week ago called Noble. Anyone ever seen this movie? about a woman named Christina Noble. Fascinating story. Uh, the woman was born in December of 1944. Uh, she, she'd grown up in poverty in the middle of Ireland. Her mother ends up dying at the age of 10. And then uh, her father is a complete drunk. Uh, he spends all of the money that would be for food on his, of getting totally wasted. And uh, they find out about this, this girl, and, and then she is placed in an orphanage and then falsely told that her siblings are dead and had died. And she grows up in this orphanage. Finally, she, she ages out of the orphanage. Uh, she goes goes to work. She's, end up being, she's gang raped. She ends, up being, um, she ends up getting pregnant, is forced to give up this child to adoption. She then marries, has three children, becomes the victim of domestic abuse and ends up uh, leaving her husband. But God is speaking to her, and she continues having this dream in the early 1970s about Vietnam children. And she feels like she's to go to Vietnam. She's to go to Vietnam. She shows up in Vietnam, not knowing what she's going to do. She's just walking around, trying to figure out why she's there and why God brought her there. And she just decides one day she's going to go out on a walk and that God will show her. And as she does, she starts encountering these children that are orphans that had been left behind, that had been the children's that, children of, uh, of Vietnamese and American parents. Many of them had been deformed uh, by napalm and so on, and they just were left out in the middle of society. And then she ends up starting this group and, and starts working with an orphanage and starting a foundation. And now, she, through her work, she has transformed the lives of 700,000 children her work is still going on today to spread to other countries. Why? Because of the hurt that she herself experienced. She said, I'd gone through all this and I wanted to help those who had gone through similar pain in their lives. She was redeeming her pain to help and reach out to those who were hurting, who had been abused, who had been victims, who had been rejected, who had been lied to. God had redeemed her pain See, we have to understand that the pain that we go through in life that God wants to use for his purpose. What pain have you gone through that God wants to use? What comfort have you received from God that he wants you to spill that over to other people? How we can empathize, how we can understand, how we can sympathize and then go beyond sympathy to help people that are in the midst of struggle and that God had worked through Joseph and he'd gone through all of these things, but yet he learned how to be a steward in the middle of Potiphar's house. He learned how to run the house. Then he learned how to run this prison. He learned how to help people. He learned how to take care of those who had been marginalized. And then here he is, now in all, leader of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, and he is now preserving the lives of thousands of people, and not just Egyptians, but his own family as well. God's purpose. God has this way of working out his purpose in our lives. We have to learn to focus on God's purpose. Focus on God's purpose. That's letter C in your notes under number two. I mean, we're to fight through the pain, forgive those who hurt us, and then focus on God's purpose. The final thing that we can see through Joseph's life, through this episode of Joseph, is an incredible future for our possession. A future for our possession. When we seek God, He promises to prosper us. How does God prosper us? It can be in several ways. But one of the most common is a full and long life and children. That's what we see, that's what God does in Joseph's life. Look at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. He's able to see his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And his grandsons are considered his own to perpetuate his name. He's given a long life, 110 years. God had prospered him beyond money. He'd given him a long life and a family. See, our future is often seen in our families. We can see this in scriptures such as Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand, hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Or again in Proverbs seventeen six, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Children are one of the greatest blessings of God. And Joseph's family was especially blessed. Why are children such a blessing? And why do we have to remind ourselves that children are a blessing? Because they are to propagate the faith, expand the kingdom of God, and to act as our own legacies. God will prosper us when we trust in Him. He will establish our name and our families. But with Joseph, it went a bit further. Joseph helped preserve the lives of the Egyptians, the surrounding peoples, and most of all, his own family. His brothers, his father. And that would end up being, bringing blessing to the entire earth. It was the family through whom God had promised that the Messiah would come. Is your faith seen in your family? What about your children? Do their lives testify to others about your faith? It's a pressure on all of us. It's a hard one. God puts a great deal of emphasis on us as parents we can have our children become celebrities or politicians but if they do not enter into the kingdom of heaven then we failed we could see that future possession in his family but also in his final words final words look at verse 24 and joseph said to his brothers i'm about to die now he's younger than his brothers but god will visit you and bring you up out of the land of this land to the land that he swore to abraham to isaac and to jacob then joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Why did he talk about his why did he say this in it with his final breath? See, he prophetically told them that God would take them out of the land of Egypt and take them back to the land promised to their grand their great grandfather, their grandfather and their father. His final words encouraged his descendants to look toward the home that God had promised. There was a land for their possession that God would give them one day, which is a precursor to our, the land that we have, which is heaven. And what will our final words be about? A man's final words often reflect the life of the man. D.L. Moody's final words were nothing short of amazing. He said, earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. I must go. What will your final words be? What will your final words be? last but not least Joseph's incredible future is seen in his funeral. In his funeral. Look at verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Why was he put in a coffin in Egypt? Why wasn't he buried? Because he wanted his body to be a visible reminder that Egypt was not their home. See last week we talked about you having your funeral and how it needs to testify about your faith. It should be a reminder to everyone that this world is not your home. And for Joseph, that was it. As we see the last verses. It says they, Actually, verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He wasn't taken back to Canaan. He was left in Egypt. Because he wanted it to be a visible reminder to the nation of Israel that this world is not your home. Egypt is not your homeland. Canaanese. And one day, I want you to take my, bod- my bones back to that land and bury me there. I want it to be a testimony that this world is not your home. This is the last episode of Joseph's life and it's meant to reflect the blessing of God upon his life, his faith, as well as a reminder that Egypt wasn't his home. Like Joseph, we're not home yet. But where is your home? What will the last episode of your life be like? Well, you funeral, testify to others that this world was not your home, that they need not to weep and knowing that you will see them again? Is it truly the, the heart, your heartbeat, that your life, that you exist for Christ, that He is your life? He's not a part of our lives. As Colossians says, when Christ who is your life appears, He is our life, the essence of our life, the reason for our being. He is our hope. He is our heartbeat. He is our greatest love. There's nothing greater than Him. Will our life, will our funeral represent that fact? And the question is is not whether our funeral will be, but will our life now reflect that? That this world is not our home? You know, as there was a video released this past week. You might have seen it with Pastor Tim. And he was talking about this and he was talking about the All In campaign and he was showing that this is just one way to show that this world is not our home. By giving back to God. To show by our finances that this world is not our home. Many of us are trying to get, 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 and get, and get. And this Christmas season, it's all about, I mean, my kids are always looking through the catalog. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. How often do we think about giving away to let our lives be a reflection of what God means to us? Is your life a reflection that this world is not your home, just as it was for Joseph? This last episode of his life, we can see that he had a favor that only God could provide, a faith that persevered despite all the circumstances and a future for his possession. Is Christ your future possession? Is this world your home? Know that you can have your sins forgiven, that you can have eternal life through or eternal life with God. Because you know Joseph is a type of Christ. His life points to eternity. Our home is in heaven. Our hope is in him. And we too will receive an inheritance one day. And that is the day we look forward to because of what Jesus did on the cross. He took our sin and our shame on the cross. He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And by placing our faith in Him, we become recipients of His glorious life. Do you have that life? Do you have the forgiveness that can only be found in and through Him? And can your life testify to something greater than yourself? If not, the answer is simple. Put your faith and hope in Christ and He will empower and strengthen you to testify by your life and your death that He is God. Let's pray. Father, words seem so insufficient to communicate the reality that is you. To communicate the hope that we have in you. To communicate or to understand that you are our highest aspiration. That you are our purpose. That you go beyond any pleasure that this world offers unto us. Lord, there is nothing that could that can satisfy us on this side of eternity except you, Lord, as your servant said, our hearts are restless till they find you or do they find the rest in you, Lord, How often have we tried to find peace and purpose and so many other things, so many habits, so many pursuits, whether it's personal fulfillment whether it 's relationships, whether it 's uh, power, prestige, whether it 's fame, fortune, whether it 's influence, whether it 's all of the different comforts of life, Lord, we know that they they are leaky cisterns, as your word says, unable to hold water, and Lord, we seek to return to you our first love, and may our lives truly begin to represent what you mean to us, and Lord, how much we value you. So Lord, direct our lives, and may our lives now be a reflection of the life that we espouse and of the truths that we espouse, that this world is not our home. And Lord, may we give sacrificially. May we give generously. May, give, may we give to the furtherance of your kingdom, not just, Lord, our, our money, but our very lives. May they reflect that you are God Lord, help us to speak to other people. Help us to take risks for your kingdom. Help us to speak out and speak up. Help us to speak to those that we love that are doomed for hell. Help us to truly be breakers in the ocean of culture that can say, you can go here but no further. May we be steadfast and movable, standing wholly upon your word, knowing that you alone are God. Lord, forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we have turned away from our responsibilities, when we have given ourselves over to all kinds of pursuits and pleasures that are not of you. And Lord, may we turn back to you and receive the forgiveness that is found through your son's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And Lord, please have mercy upon us and may our lives truly and accurately reflect back to you what you mean to us. Bless us, use us, and grow us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.